0: Chapter Eleven Part Two of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter Eleven The Natural Resources of the Nation. Part Two. Another principle which led to the bitterest antagonism of all was this. Whoever, except a bona fide settler, takes public property for private profit, should pay for what he gets. In the effort to apply this principle, the Forest Service obtained a decision from the Attorney General that it was legal to make men who grazed sheep and cattle on the national forests pay for what they got. Accordingly, in the summer of 1906, for the first time, such a charge was made and in the face of the bitterest opposition it was collected up to the time the national forests were put under the charge of the forest service the interior department had made no effort to establish public regulation and control of water powers upon the transfer the service immediately began its fight to handle the power resources of the national forests so as to prevent speculation and monopoly and to yield a fair return to the government On May 1, 1906, an act was passed granting the use of certain power sites in Southern California to the Edison Electric Power Company, which act, at the suggestion of the service, limited the period of the permit to forty years, and required the payment of an annual rental by the company, the same conditions which were thereafter adopted by the service as the basis for all permits for power development then began a vigorous fight against the position of the service by the water-power interests. The right to charge for water-power development was, however, sustained by the Attorney General. In 1907, the area of the National Forest was increased by Presidential Proclamation more than 43 million acres. The plant necessary for the full use of the forests, such as roads, trails, and telephone lines, began to be provided on a large scale, the interchange of field and office men, so as to prevent antagonism between them, which is so destructive to efficiency in most great businesses, was established as a permanent policy, and the really effective management of the enormous area of the national forests began to be secured. With all this activity in the field, the progress of technical forestry and popular education was not neglected. In 1907, for example, sixty-one publications on various phases of forestry with a total of more than a million copies were issued as against three publications with a total of eighty-two thousand copies in 1901. by this time also the opposition of the servants of the special interests in congress to the forest service had become strongly developed and more time appeared to be spent in the yearly attacks upon it during the passage of the appropriation bills than on all other government bureaus put together every year the forest service had to fight for its life one incident in these attacks is worth recording while the agricultural appropriation bill was passing through the senate in nineteen o seven senator fulton of oregon secured an amendment providing that the president could not set aside any national forests in the six northwestern states this meant retaining some sixteen million of acres to be exploited by land grabbers and by the representatives of the great special interests at the expense of the public interest but for four years the forest service had been gathering field notes as to what forests ought to be set aside in these states and so was prepared to act it was equally undesirable to veto the whole agricultural bill and to sign it with this amendment effective Accordingly, a plan to create the necessary national forest in these states before the agricultural bill could be passed and signed was laid before me by Mr. Pinchot. I approved it. The necessary papers were immediately prepared. I signed the last proclamation a couple of days before, by my signature. The bill became law. And, when the friends of the special interests in the Senate got their amendment through and woke up, they discovered that 16 million acres of timberland had been saved for the people by putting them in the national forests before the land-grabbers could get at them. The opponents of the Forest Service turned handsprings in their wrath, and dire were their threats against the executive, but the threats could not be carried out, and were really only a tribute to the efficiency of our action. By 1908, the fire prevention work of the Forest Service had become so successful that 86% of the fires that did occur were held down to an area of five acres or less, and the timber sales, which yielded $60,000 in 1905, and in 1908 produced $850,000. In the same year, in addition to the work of the National Forests, the responsibility for the proper handling of Indian timberlands was laid upon the Forest Service, where it remained with great benefit to the Indians until it was withdrawn, as a part of the attack on the conservation policy made after I left office. By March fourth, nineteen 1909, nearly half a million acres of agricultural land in the National Forests had been opened to settlement under the Act of June eleventh, nineteen 1906. The business management of the Forest Service became so excellent, thanks to the remarkable executive capacity of the associate forester, Overton W. Price, Removed after I left office, that it was declared by a well known firm of business organizers to compare favorably with the best managed of the great private corporations, an opinion which was confirmed by the report of a Congressional investigation and by the report of the Presidential Committee on Department Method. The area of the national forests had increased from forty three to one hundred and ninety four million acres, the force from about five hundred to more than three thousand. There was saved, for public use in the National Forests, more government timberland during the seven and a half years prior to March 4, 1909, than during all previous and succeeding years put together. The idea that the Executive is the steward of the public welfare was first formulated and given practical effect in the Forest Service by its law officer, George Woodruff. The laws were often insufficient, and it became well-nigh impossible to get them amended in the public interest when once the representatives of privilege in Congress grasped the fact that I would sign no amendment that contained anything not in the public interest. It was necessary to use what law was already in existence, and then further to supplement it by executive action. The practice of examining every claim to public land before passing it into private ownership offers a good example of the policy in question. This practice, which has since become general, was first applied in the National Forests enormous areas of valuable public timberland were thereby saved from fraudulent acquisition more than two hundred and fifty thousand acres were thus saved in a single case this theory of stewardship in the interest of the public was well illustrated by the establishment of a water power policy until the forest service changed the plan water powers on the navigable streams on the public domain and in the national forests were given away for nothing and substantially without question to whoever asked for them. At last, under the principle that public property should be paid for and should not be permanently granted away when such permanent grant is avoidable, the Forest Service established the policy of regulating the use of power in the national forests, in the public interest, and making a charge for value received. This was the beginning of the water-power policy now substantially accepted by the public, and doubtless soon to be enacted into law but there was at the outset violent opposition to it on the part of the water-power companies, and such representatives of their views in Congress as Messrs. Tawney and Bede. Many bills were introduced in Congress aimed, in one way or another, at relieving the power-companies of control and payment. When these bills reached me I refused to sign them, and the injury to the public interest which would follow their passage was brought sharply to public attention in my message of february twenty sixth nineteen o eight the bills made no further progress under the same principle of stewardship railroads and other corporations which applied for and were given rights in the national forests were regulated in the use of those rights in short the public resources in charge of the forest service were handled frankly and openly for the public welfare under the clear-cut and clearly set forth principles that the public rights come first and private interests second the natural result of this new attitude was the assertion in every form by the representatives of special interests that the forest service was exceeding its legal powers and thwarting the intention of congress suits were begun wherever the chance arose it is worth recording that in spite of the novelty and complexity of the legal questions it had to face no court of last resort had ever decided against the forest service this statement includes the two unanimous decisions by the supreme court of the united states in its administration of the national forests the forest service found that valuable coal lands were in danger of passing into private ownership without adequate money returns to the government and without safeguard against monopoly and that existing legislation was insufficient to prevent this. When this condition was brought to my attention, I withdrew all forms of entry about 68 million acres of coal land in the United States, including Alaska. The refusal of Congress to act in the public interest was solely responsible for keeping these lands from entry. The conservation movement was a direct outgrowth of the forest movement. It was nothing more than the application to our other natural resources of the principles which had been worked out in connection with the forests. Without the basis of public sentiment which had been built up for the protection of the forests, and without the example of public foresight in the protection of this, one of the great natural resources, the conservation movement, would have been impossible. The first formal step was the creation of the Inland Waterways Commission, appointed on March 14, 1907 in my letter appointing the commission i called attention to the value of our streams as a great natural resource and to the need for a progressive plan for their development and control and said it is not possible to properly frame so large a plan as this for the control of our rivers without taking account of the orderly development of other national resources therefore i ask that the inland waterways commission shall consider the relations of the streams to the use of all great permanent national resources and their conservation for making and maintaining of prosperous homes." Over a year later, writing on the report of the Commission, I said, The preliminary report of the Inland Waterways Commission was excellent in every way. It outlines a general plan of waterway improvement which, when adopted, will give assurance that the improvements will yield practical results in the way of increased navigation and water transportation. In every essential feature, the plan recommended by the Commission is new in the principle of coordinating all uses of the waters and treating each water system as a unit, in the principle of correlating water traffic with rail and other land traffic, in the principle of expert initiation of projects in accordance with commercial foresight and the needs of a growing country, and in the principle of cooperation between the states and the federal government, in the administration and use of waterways, etc. The general plan proposed by the Commission is new, And at the same time sane and simple. The plan deserves unqualified support. I regret that it has not yet been adopted by Congress, but I am confident that ultimately it will be adopted." The most striking incident in the history of the Commission was the trip down the Mississippi River in October 1907, when, as President of the United States, I was the chief guest. This excursion, with the meetings which were held and the wide public attention it attracted, gave the development of our inland waterways a new standing in public estimation. During the trip, a letter was prepared and presented to me, asking me to summon a conference on the conservation of natural resources. My intention to call such a conference was publicly announced at a great meeting at Memphis, Tennessee. In the November following, I wrote to each of the governors of the several states, and to the presidents of the various important national societies concerned with national resources, inviting them to attend the conference which took place may thirteen to may fifteenth nineteen o eight in the east room of the white house it is doubtful whether except in time of war any new idea of like importance has ever been presented to a nation and accepted by it with such effectiveness and rapidity as was the case with this conservation movement when it was introduced to the american people by the conference of governors the first result was the unanimous declaration of the governors of all the states and territories upon the subject of the conservation a document which ought to be hung in every schoolhouse throughout the land a further result was the appointment of thirty-six state conservation commissions and on june eighth nineteen o eight of the national conservation commission the task of this commission was to prepare an inventory the first ever made for any nation of all the natural resources which underlay its property The making of this inventory was made possible by an executive order which placed the resources of the government departments at the command of the Commission, and made possible the organization of subsidiary committees by which the actual facts for the inventory were prepared and digested. Guilford Pinchot was made chairman of the Commission. The report of the National Conservation Commission was not only the first inventory of our resources but was unique in the history of government in the amount and variety of information brought together. It was completed in six months. It laid squarely before the American people the essential facts regarding our natural resources, when facts were greatly needed as the basis for constructive action. This report was presented to the Joint Conservation Congress in December, at which there were present governors of twenty states, representatives of twenty-two state conservation commissions, and representatives of sixty national organizations previously represented at the white house conference the report was unanimously approved and transmitted to me january eleventh nineteen o nine on january twenty second nineteen o nine i transmitted the report of the national conservation commission to congress with a special message in which it was accurately described as one of the most fundamentally important documents ever laid before the american people the joint conservation congress of december nineteen o eight suggested to me the practicability of holding a north american conservation congress i selected guilford pinchot to convey this invitation in person to lord grey governor-general of canada and to sir wilfrid laurier and to president diaz of mexico giving reason for my action in the letter in which this invitation was conveyed the fact that it is evident that natural resources are not limited by boundary lines which separate nations and that the need for conserving them upon this continent is as wide as the area upon which they exist." In response to this invitation, which included the colony of Newfoundland, the commissioners assembled in the White House on February 18, 1909. The American commissioners were Guilford Pinchot, Robert Bacon, and James R. Garfield. After a session continuing through five days, the conference united in a declaration of principles and suggested to the President of the United States, "...that all nations should be invited to join together in the Conference on the Subject of World Resources and their inventory, conservation, and wide utilization." Accordingly, on February nineteenth, nineteen 1909, Robert Bacon, Secretary of State, addressed to 45 nations a letter of invitation, to send delegates to a conference to be held at the hague at such date to be found convenient there to meet and consult like the delegates of other countries with a view of considering a general plan for an inventory of the natural resources of the world and to devising a uniform scheme for the expression of the result of such inventory to the end that there may be a general understanding and appreciation of the world supply of the material elements which underlie the development of civilization and the welfare of the peoples of the earth." End quote. After I left the white house the project lapsed. End chapter 11 part 2.